0: Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 19. We'll be looking at verses uh, 11 through 27 this morning. And I'll just throw my two cents into the ring as well. I want to wish the fathers, the daddios out there, a happy Father's Day. Um, In our house, Father's Day kind of got swept to the side this weekend. This is like the, the triple whammy in our house. So on Friday, my wife Erin and I celebrated 11 years of marriage, and then today is Erin's birthday. And so it just was like an afterthought. This, oh yeah, it's Father's Day too. Um, but um, McKinley, our, our oldest, she's five, she probably had, I don't know how many cards placed in front of her. Here, sign this. Say Daddy. And so she's just learning how to write. And so she must have like been like glazing over in her eyes, like, all right, one more card to fill out. My goodness. But... Um, Happy Father's Day. Uh, So this morning, we're going to continue this uh, series uh, being fruitful, uh, how the gospel releases you to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, And today, we're going to examine the fruit of faithfulness. And the way we're going to do this is we're actually going to look at one of the parables of Jesus, one of the stories that he tells us in the gospels. Um, And it's a story about a king uh, who entrusts his servants with something to be faithful with and goes away, and what they do in that waiting time between the already and the not yet, between the time of the king giving instruction and then his glorious return, what they do with what he's entrusted to them uh, is the, the faithfulness that they are empowered to, to have by the Spirit. And so it's, it's in this context that Jesus gives us the parable of the minas in Luke 19. And so we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning unpacking this account, and then we're going to look at some practical application from this story for us as we think about what does it mean for us as New Testament Christians to be faithful, to display the fruit of faithfulness uh, in our lives. Now, before we dive into the actual parable, it would be helpful to understand the setting in which Jesus shares this story in the gospel. Uh, And so in Luke 18.35, we learn that as Jesus is approaching Jericho, he heals a blind beggar. And in verse 43, we learn that the reaction of the crowd is one of enthusiasm and anticipation because of their understanding of who they thought Jesus was to be and what the kingdom was going to be all about. It says all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. And so by the time we get to Luke 19, the atmosphere is just electric. Jerusalem is on the horizon. These people are they're ready for the revolution. Let's make Jesus our king. But Jesus has some other plans. He's not a politician. Unlike all of the politicians from his day down to ours, Jesus doesn't care about what the latest internal polling data suggests. He's not dishing out Make Jerusalem Great Again hats. He's not trying to negotiate the the best exit deal with Rome. But instead, he has come for a very distinct purpose, to be faithful to his Father in seeking and saving the lost. He's faithful to what the Father's entrusted him. And so upon arriving in Jericho to the roar of the crowd, it's just, <sighs> he finds the weest baddie that he can in Zacchaeus. And he goes and he offers fellowship. He offers love and forgiveness. And in doing so, it's like you probably could, I'm just trying to imagine like the, the silence that fell over the crowd, the pin that you could hear drop. What is he doing? He comes to seek and save the lost. And so it's in the immediate aftermath of these events that Jesus shares this final parable before entering Jerusalem, the place where his earthly ministry is going to culminate. And so this is important because it gives us the why of Jesus sharing this particular parable. And we see it in verse 11 of Luke 19, uh, it says as they heard these things he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately the parable of the minas is meant to correct the expectations of the crowd that want the expediency of the kingdom for their own benefit but they cannot begin to fathom the suffering of the cross Additionally, the the purpose of this parable is to let his followers know that not only is he going to fail to meet the common expectations of what the Messiah was to be, namely a geopolitical ruler, but that the full realization of his kingdom was still so long off in the future and that it would be in the waiting between that already and not yet that their faithfulness would play a critical role in proclaiming the truth and the hope of the kingdom to a watching world until it finally does appear. So it's in that context that we have this story. Now, let's see some of the characters that Jesus introduces to us. Pick up with me in verse 12 as Jesus kind of lets us know who is involved here in this story. He said therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So first we have the nobleman. Now Jesus's example of a nobleman or a client ruler traveling to a power broker in a distant land was not an uncommon idea to them in this day. To us, we're reading that. We're like, what is that even? What's the context of that? But in fact, it was very much part of the current political landscape under Roman rule. King Herod and others in his line traveled to Rome in this exact manner. In fact, there are even accounts of Herod's son, Archelius, being followed and hounded by his would-be subjects all the way to Rome as he appeals to Caesar Augustus, In order to have the crown. And so, while it's bizarre that Jesus would invoke imagery of such unpopular and sinful rulers, it's important to note that, unlike the real life client rulers of the first century, we have every reason to believe that the nobleman in this parable is a good figure, and is in fact a representation of Christ. Though we must be careful not to take every detail of the parables literally, we also want to be careful not to run too far in the other direction and recognize that these details are here for a very distinct purpose, to teach us and tell us something about our God and about how we are to follow his instruction. And so the picture here is this, like the nobleman in the story, Jesus, after accomplishing his earthly mission of redeeming sinners back to God, he's going to go into the distant country that is heaven, where he will receive the reward for his suffering, and where, as the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, when Christ had suffered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So we have the nobleman traveling to the distant country, but in the story, before he leaves, we're also introduced to another set of characters. Look on with me in verse 13. It says, Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. So we have the ten servants who, in accordance with this story, would have been those who recognized the nobleman as their rightful ruler and they would have publicly declared their allegiance to him. It's therefore not too much of a stretch to presume that these ten servants in the parable are to represent those who would identify as disciples of Jesus. And if that's the case, then there is practical instruction for us as gospel people in how we are to display faithfulness in the tangible resources that the Lord entrusts to our care. Notice how they're not instructed to make a profit with the Minna, but merely to engage in business until the ruler comes back. Whereas previous parables of Jesus had expressed interest in teaching his followers how to use money and earthly resources in a godly way for impact on eternity, this parable is more interested in the broader scope of all of a disciple's life. So that's his resources as well as the unique circumstances, trials, and gifts that have been bestowed on him by the Lord to be used as a witness to those around him, to those in his life. This means that the musician as well as the mechanical engineer have equal opportunity to use their unique positions and places in life to display faithfulness by utilizing the uniqueness of their circumstances for gospel impact, Now, a minna was roughly equal to 100 days' wages. Or to think about it in modern terms, it's about a quarter of your annual salary. So, think about in terms of like between five and ten grand. Interestingly, this is the only place in the gospel where we see this unit of money mentioned. And when we compare it to Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25, where a talent is worth 60 minna, we see that a minna is, relatively speaking, it's a modest amount of money. In short, it's, it's a trial sum to test the servant's faithfulness in the king's absence. And it's, it's kind of in keeping with that sentiment of the scriptures of uh, give me n- neither riches nor poverty, right? It's not this lavish, amount, this like winning the lottery, but it's also not nothing. It's a tangible amount. And, and it's in that, that thought of like Proverbs 38, where you just say, Lord, give me neither riches nor nothing. Like, let me just have what I need in order to demonstrate faithfulness and not be distracted by the want of money or the overwhelming passion and pursuit of money. So we have the nobleman representing Christ, we have the ten servants representing those who have surrendered to Christ's lordship, and then lastly we see the citizens. Look in verse 14 with me. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us unlike the servants the citizens do not recognize the nobleman as their master nor are they willing to submit to his authority and what we see in them is the natural state of man the scriptures repeatedly tell us that there is no one who does good there's no one who seeks after god and jesus as he so often does throughout the gospels he makes it clear that there can be no middle ground when it comes to an individual's stance on the Son of God. Either he will love Him in a life of surrender to His Lordship, or he will reject Him and seek to stand in His place as master of His own life. And so here's some practical application for us this morning as gospel people. The Spirit at work in our lives allows us to bear the fruit of faithfulness to God and the life-giving truth he has revealed even under the increased pressure and hostility that meets us in the world. I'm sure that you're aware the, the gospel is not popular. The, the, the message of Jesus and the way of the cross is met with disdain all around us. Increasingly, more and more, day after day, we see it. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, in the midst of that climate, will we remain faithful to this gospel? Will we remain faithful to sound teaching? The ways that seem right to natural man, they're not led by the Spirit, but by foolish hearts that are darkened to true beauty and life. There are claims of wisdom in our culture that seem to get louder with each passing day. And the Bible is outdated. It's restrictive, you'll hear them say. It restricts my personal freedom. I just want to do what feels right to me. And in our flesh, we can be tempted to shrink back from the public square of challenging those assertions with the way we conduct ourselves for fear of being ridiculed or labeled unleavened when in fact the most loving thing that we can do is point them to the beauty of who God is and what he is doing. This temptation to shrink back in the midst of hostility in the culture, it's not new to 21st century believers. The Apostle Paul speaks directly to it in the opening of his second letter to Timothy. Listen to these words as as I read Second uh, Timothy verse, chapter one, verses eight through 14. He says, there, "Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saves us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began." And which now he has been, has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Hear this, he says, Which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This is the instruction for us. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Do you, this morning, As the Apostle Paul before you, know whom you have believed. This man, Jesus, came. He died to make a way, and he rose up to create the possibility of a new destiny for humanity. We're not ashamed of that reality. And as those who have been filled with God's Spirit, we've been both called and equipped to bear the fruit of faithfulness by displaying life-giving doses of the gospel, to model these gospel realities in the way that we conduct our homes, the way we love our spouses, the way we instruct our children, the way we invite the stranger and the foreigner into the life and the hope that we have. Because we know that regardless of what the hostility of the world may hold for God and His Word, we have tasted and we've seen that the Lord is good. He is good. It's worth noting here in verse 14, once the nobleman leaves, he faces mutiny from the subjects who hate him and reject his rule. But the parable gives no indication that the nobleman deserves this hatred. Instead, verse 14, and for that matter, as we're gonna see in just a little bit in verse 22, rejection of the nobleman should be viewed as a negative reflection on those who reject his rule, not on the ruler himself. So now we have met all of the major players here in this story that Jesus tells us. And so let's take a look at what takes place once the nobleman returns, starting in verse 15. It says, When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your minna has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas, and he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. We see here that upon the nobleman's return, His servants are called to give an account of how they have conducted themselves in his absence. And of the ten servants previously mentioned, Jesus now focuses in on three of them. The first makes 1,000% profit. The second makes 500% profit. And then the third, we're going to get to him in a minute. Do you notice how nowhere in this parable does it say that the first servant who made twice as much profit as the second servant did so because he was more faithful? That's so important to recognize. It's it's not that he did that because he was more faithful. The implication for us is that it's not about doing more or trying harder or being better than our brothers and sisters in Christ, not trying to one-up them with good works instead the emphasis is on us being faithful with the portion that the lord has given to us and trusting those results up to him we're just faithful with what he gives us we don't have to look here or there we just take what he has given to us what is our responsibility and he is honored and blessed when we are faithful with that portion the miracle is not in the natural endowments of the servant praise god right I know if that was up to me, that would be doomed, but the providence of God multiplies those faithful exercises of the average gifts to extraordinary effect. You see, the reward for faithful discipleship, it's not greater privilege. Like, it's not more favor with God than other saints. Instead, it's the blessing of greater participation and responsibility in the master's reign like we get invited more and entrusted with more when we're faithful with what we're given and there's great blessing and joy that comes from being a part of what the father is doing i think about peter so at, at first he's faithful in a little right like jesus sees these guys out on the boat and he says come follow me and i will make you fishers of men Peter just takes that simple step of faithfulness in what he's been called to. He steps out of the boat. He follows Jesus. And in doing so, he doesn't earn salvation. We know that can't be earned. But he's he's entrusted with an even greater task as a result of his faithfulness. Jesus says, feed my sheep. And so he takes that next step and he... He responds in faithfulness to what the Lord gives him. And then Jesus entrusts him, we see later on in the scriptures, with the task of sitting in heaven as a judge over the twelve tribes. So, are we to presume then from from this account that the reward for faithfulness is simply the burden of more work? Like, let me just be faithful. I don't want to be faithful, Jesus, because he's just giving me more stuff to do. Not at all. Thanks, Jesus. I'm, I'm good. I'm just going to hold on to this. I don't want to be the first minister of any part of a little village in heaven or something. No, of course not. Are we to presume that Peter has greater access to the Father than the thief on the cross, or you, or me? Not at all. But what a blessing and an honor to be found faithful by God. And so this brings us to the third servant. Pick up with me in verse 20. It says, Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then Did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? It bears repeating. We're not to presume from this interaction that this nobleman is actually corrupt, only that he is perceived as such in the mind of the third servant. You see how the servant justifies his actions as a virtue. Not admitting fault, but insinuating the fault actually lies with the master. And it's kind of reminiscent of, of Adam in the garden blaming God in Genesis 3. Like, it's, it's this woman's fault whom you, you gave her to me. She gave, took the fruit. I ate of it. And ultimately, that means it's your fault, God. It's the same sentiment. But the king doesn't defend his character or enter into dispute with the servant. Instead he highlights the fault in his logic. Simply wrapping the minna in a hanky and stashing it in a drawer shows the contradiction in the third servant's statement. Like, if he really believed that this nobleman was so harsh, he would have at least put the minna in a bank to assuage the master's greed with the interest that it would have accrued. Like, if he actually believed this, that's what he would have done, but it just goes to show he was just making up an excuse. He was looking for someone else to pass the blame on to. And the real world application is evident. Regardless of people's misconceptions about the true nature of God, he has accurately revealed himself to his creation. And his character, it's not up for debate. He's gracious. He is slow to anger. Our God is altogether good and lovely. And we see all of those attributes on display here, even in the way the nobleman responds to the third servant in this parable. Read with me in verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas." And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas." I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I want to be careful because we can, we can read those verses and, and it would be tempting to look at them in terms of socioeconomic situation. Like this isn't the idea of the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, the have-nots get even more taken away. That's, that's not what's going on here. The point here is spiritual legacy. It's fruitfulness and faithfulness in the kingdom work. Those who are proving faithful in the kingdom, God is going to entrust more of his gospel work to them. There's a blessing in being a part of it, being a part of what the Father is doing. It's not as though God needs us, right? We know he doesn't need us. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. From us he can save the whole world without us he can do this without incorporating our efforts or our hand at all but out of love for us he actually invites us into what he's doing he invites us into this plan of salvation and it's a beautiful thing to be right there with our father as he is going about this amazing work of redeeming and calling back sinners to himself uh, so I, I mentioned our oldest daughter, McKinley. She's five. We also have a really large dog. Uh, he's a Labrador, and he is, he is food motivated. Like that dog is ready to eat at all times, whenever, wherever. And um, at seven o'clock every morning, he, if we haven't gotten up and fed him yet, he is howling, ready for his food. And um, McKinley uh, really has recently, she's gotten older, she's Enjoyed helping out around the house, and one of the things that we've allowed her to start doing is feeding the dog, um, which sounds simple enough. But for a little five-year-old girl and a big dog who's really hungry, uh, it's not that easy. Um, but she wants to do it; she's so excited about it. So we put his food in this big, like, plaster um, canister because, I mean, he'll he'll just eat through a bag. So it's got to be hidden away with this big lid on top of it, so he can't knock it over with his snout. Um, and it's heavy so McKinley she'll go over there and she'll she'll pick up the lid and she's like pulling it off and then sometimes it drops on the floor makes a big thud sorry neighbors downstairs Um, and then she takes out the scoop and she gets the scoop out and she doesn't have that great of coordination yet and so some of the food spills over here and then it spills over here and there's probably like a a six-foot radius that the dog is now eating from and maybe a little bit of it gets in the bowl and the whole thing takes her a lot longer than it would take me if I just went and and did the scoop myself. But the thing is, as long as it takes her, there is great joy and satisfaction that she gets in being a part of what it means to be productive and loving in our house and feeding the animals, taking part in what mom and dad are doing. And because we love her, we include her in that, even though it would be a whole lot easier just to take her out of the process entirely and do it myself. It's that type of privilege that the unfaithful servant misses out on. Notice how the third servant loses what he's entrusted with, yet he's still considered a servant. He's, his punishment isn't destruction or removal from the kingdom. He, he can't lose his salvation, but it, it's, it's one of missed opportunity, and it's the forfeited blessing of taking part in the work of his master. And so this, of course, points to the reality that each of us, we're all going to stand before our Father someday. And we're going to give an account of our lives, of were we faithful with what he gave us. If you are redeemed by the blood of Christ, there's nothing more to be done to gain favor with God or attain entry into the kingdom. Christ is a sure and steady foundation for your life. He will always hold you fast. Still, we we must ask ourselves, what are we building on top of that foundation? Is it, as Paul alludes to in 1 Corinthians 3, things that will last into eternity? Or is it things that are going to burn up along the way? Be resolved. Be resolved in your heart that a life lived in faithfulness to Christ is always better than one that's not. To take the minna given to you that is your vocation and say, how can I demonstrate to my coworkers, my boss, and those who benefit from the toils of my labor that Jesus is supremely good? To take the minna given to you in your family dynamic in all of its glory, in all of its tragedy, in all of its dysfunction even, be it as a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a single, or some combination of these, and to ask, how can I leverage this role in a way that loves those to whom I'm responsible as Christ loves me, and to show them that His love is the greatest love that they could ever know? To take the minna given to you in your sexuality, and ask God, how can I surrender my physical desires to your good design in such a way that a watching world will look on and know that there is nothing more satisfying than a life lived for you? When we think about all of the aspects of our lives that the Lord has given to us to use as a testimony of his gospel, we recognize that whether it's in the big things or the little things, we communicate something of Him to the world around us. And so the point is this. Disciples who deploy their gifts faithfully and joyfully cannot anticipate the results, but they will be astonished by them. Well, will the return on the investment of the faithfulness of your life be a hundred mina, ten mina? zero point zero 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 four five six vinna? god knows but whatever it is it's priceless and it's always worth it because only what's done in the name of christ on display for the world is what's going to last and this brings us to the last and the most challenging verse in this parable And it's one that forces us to soberly think about what is the fate of the citizens who fail to acknowledge the nobleman as their king. Read verse 27 with me. He says, But as for these enemies of mine, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. There are many modern translations that actually want to change that word slaughter and to make it seem less abrasive less offensive and even in this context kill is like a more palatable word than slaughter but the original greek here is to slay slay them before me so if we're to love our neighbors and and to love god then part of biblical faithfulness is preaching this whole gospel If we have been equipped by the Spirit of God to display the fruit of faithfulness, we're going to preach the whole gospel. We cannot ignore the sobering implications of these words. So if you're here this morning, and you're not sure where you stand with God, or maybe you're new to the whole Christianity thing, if you hear nothing else, hear the following. In God, we have a king Who is so holy, so glorious, so pure, that to rebel against him, it's to rebel against goodness itself. And because God is just, he cannot, he will not allow sin to go unpunished. He's not just going to sweep it under the rug. To do so would actually be very corrupt, and it would be a defilement of his own character. He has to crush evil. He must. And for sinful rebels like you and me, this is really, really bad news. The truth of the matter is, he could condemn the whole world to hell, and no one would have the right to question his character. But, not only is God wholly just, he is also mysteriously loving and for reasons that we will never understand, even if we took a lifetime to contemplate them. God loves his unfaithful people, and he is determined to make a way for his justice and his love to mingle in a glorious rescue plan known as the gospel. There is a way, just one, for his justice to prevail And his love to conquer. And it's a plan that was devised before time began. God the Father would send God the Son, who would willingly come behind enemy lines to the world he created and make his enemies his friends. Dying in their place, incurring the wrath of God against their sin, physically, but also spiritually, once and for all, absorbing the torment of total abandonment by God. And yet, upon being dead for three days, he comes through death, taking back his life and rendering death nothing but a doorway for those that trust in him. That thou, sinful people can be reconciled to their God. They can be brought into life and hope with him for all time. Like the nobleman in the story, we have a king who is coming back. And we will stand before him, and we will give an account for what we have done with our lives that he has entrusted us with. And so for those that hold fast to that hope that Jesus secured on the cross, something truly extraordinary happens. When we stand before our Heavenly Father, he won't see our sin. Instead, he will see the perfection of his Son covering us, and we will Boldly be able to stand there with absolutely nothing to offer him. Just empty hands that reach out and plead the the blood. And Jesus steps in and says, I've got this one. I've covered this one. He is mine. And that will be enough. That will be enough before the Father one day. And he will say those Precious, precious words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. We were faithful in nothing. But by his Spirit, by his grace, Jesus, the one who was faithful on our behalf, welcomes us in. And so, as we think about bearing this fruit of faithfulness in our lives, We can be freed up to know that salvation is taken care of. We're not earning anything. But we have a platform now out of which we can demonstrate this amazing love to the city, to our friends, to our family. We can be faithful because he has been faithful to us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that though we are on our own, incapable of being faithful to you, you were faithful to obey the Father, to come and to not be steered one way or the other by the temptations of this world to make you an earthly ruler, Lord, but you came to save sinners. You came after us. You came to take the, the sin and the punishment away and to free us up to live faithfully for you. And so God, I pray that you would help us to do that by your spirit. That DBC uh, would be a place where your glory and your gospel would just permeate out of onto these streets, into this neighborhood, and that people would know, they would know your love. And so God, I pray for our hearts this morning. Lord, I pray for all the areas in our lives where we're not demonstrating faithfulness, Lord. I pray that You would help us to see that You are faithful, that You cover our sins, that You take these things upon Yourself and that You carry us when we can't carry ourselves. We thank You for the Spirit. We thank You that we have life. We thank You that we have freedom. We thank You that we have power to do that which we can't do in and of ourselves. And we give You all the glory, Jesus. Make much of yourself in your name. Amen.